Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guests today are sports journalists and documentary filmmakers Robert Abbott and John Dahl. Robert Abbott is a six-time Emmy Award-winning producer and director. John Dahl has won three Peabody Awards and eight Emmys for his documentary work. Their careers began at the dawn of the 24-hour news cycle back in the late 1980s. Abbott traveled the world for 14 years covering sports for CNN. John Dahl began his career at the same time and in the same place. In fact, John Dahl and Robert Abbott were production assistants together when they started at CNN, and their friendship and their careers grew pretty quickly. They both went on to work at ESPN, where both Abbott and Dahl were instrumental in creating several different series and documentary films. Robert Abbott and John Dahl were recently on the IU Bloomington campus for a screening of their latest collaboration, a documentary for ESPN's acclaimed 30 for 30 series called The Last Days of Night. The film is a behind-the-scenes story of Abbott's own investigation into Bob Knight's Indiana University basketball program, an investigation that began in 1999 and ultimately led to Bob Knight's firing after 29 years at IU. While they were here, they joined me for a conversation in the WFIU studios. Robert Abbott, John Dahl, welcome to Profiles. The two of you have been friends for about three decades, if I'm not mistaken. So how did your friendship start? We were production assistants together at CNN, specifically CNN Headline Sports. Headline Sports was a great place to be because there was no internet. So that's how people got their scores every half hour, like 1949 after the hour, through CNN Headline Sports. Robert and I converged at that time, and I think we were of like mind and really hit it off. And so, John, this was right out of college, is that right? Exactly. We were both right out of college. I went to the University of North Carolina. Robert went to Florida State. But yeah, Robert and I are extremely close in age. We're just like seven months apart in age. You were mentioning if you wanted to stay up to date, up to the minute with sports, that oh, was, was the, the way to do it. Yeah, People lived and died by headline sports. Guys who were big sports fans who'd go out on a Friday or Saturday night and they'd come home and all my friends would wait up another 20 minutes to get the scores and you'd get them in, what was it, two minutes, two minutes, 20 seconds? I think on the weekend we had a little bit of longer time, but it was boom, here, here you go, here you go. Here, you know, Yankees won, Red Sox won, they'd give highlights. You got everything you needed to know about the world of sports in two minutes. And we would take great pride in waiting up to the last minute that we could to get the very latest scores. So then we would have to race the tape to playback, right. uh, very much like the movie Broadcast News, where they're like hoping it gets to the playback machine in time. It was fun. It was crazy. It's sounding to me like you're more than a little nostalgic for that. I mean, if you look at how things are now, how immediate everything can be. Do you think, oh, those are the days? Or do you think, oh, my gosh, it's so much better now? We had a great group of people. I think that's what I always think back. There was guys like John and women we work with. To this day, a lot of my Facebook friends are all from that CNN sports group that I stay in touch with. And it's nostalgic, yes. It was important, I think. Headline news was important back then. Because no matter when you came in from the outside – you had to wait less than 30 minutes to find out if you were a sports fan, who won and who lost and who got traded and what was going on in the world of sports. And John and I were both PAs at the same time. And 
we ended up doing our job, I don't want to say fairly easily, but we look for other things to do. So John said, let's start a library. So he started taking highlights of all the NFL teams from each week, week by week, and just cutting them onto a tape. So when someone got traded, you could just pull that tape. You didn't have to go back to the main library. We did all these kind of things over and above our job. And it was, I don't want to say it was competitive, but it's just how we're wired. That John and I continued to say, hey, what can we do better? How can we make this process, even though we're PAs, run more smoothly? I mean, Robert and I had a passion for it. I've thought, like, if it were like it is today in terms of the Internet and just every game is at your fingertips, would I have become as huge a sports fan and as interested in sports media as I did? I think I probably would have. But there is something to be said for less is more, that there were less games on TV, that it was an accomplishment to get a game on the radio and listen to a game on the radio, that when you got up-to-date scores, that felt very satisfying to do something that was hard to do. So there was something challenging and kind of uh, exhilarating about that era. But this is the best era, I think, to be a sports fan, to have everything so easily at your fingertips, whatever team you're interested in whatever sport, athlete, it's right there for you. And that's fantastic. But there are definitely qualities about the previous generations, previous times that are wonderful and helped make the experience better for everybody. For those of your listeners who don't understand any of this because they're too young, we had a position where John and I and a number of other people would roll in and out of that on a daily, weekly basis was called the production coordinator, and you were in charge of bringing in all the games. And I'll remember vividly that Cincinnati Reds' Tom Browning threw a perfect game. It wasn't up on the satellite. There was no video. So it was my job to call the local stations in Cincinnati going, send us your video, send us your video. So here's a, there's a perfect game. I mean, how many times has that happened in the history of baseball? And as late as 1988, it wasn't on the satellite. Not everybody could watch it. So I started calling all the affiliates only to have the news desk say, those other stations aren't our affiliate. And I go, well, they're sending it to me anyway, so we're going to use it. And again, there wasn't as many rules back then. I mean, normally we'd reach out to the station we're affiliated with. We can use their material. But I just happened to talk to all three stations. Ironically, I had one of the stations taking it to their rival to send it to us. That would never happen today. There would be a corporate mentality like, no. But back then, they were excited to get Tom Browning's perfect game video out there. And at CNN, I didn't care who shot it. I just wanted the best video. So we had three local stations to pick from. It was fun. Yeah, it was, it was, it was more of a challenge at that time, it wasn't was. it, Robert? I mean, because you get a game off the satellite, maybe it's hard to get the coordinates for to get that game. You almost felt like you had more control over shaping the experience for viewers and for fans. It was kind of in our hands right. to have that hunger to get that extra couple of games in off the satellite or get that extra highlight in. I felt like we had more control over the experience than maybe now where it's just it's just all right there. Anybody can kind of get to it. There was a night, I believe it was Christmas Eve or Christmas, where Billy Martin got an automobile accident and passed away. And I happened to be the coordinator, and everybody in the office was trying to think, how can we get George Steinbrenner? We called Yogi Bear. You name the Yankee. We called him trying to get a hold of Steinbrenner. And it was just going for hours and hours. And I grew up in Miami and went to Florida State. So I'd drive by the Yankee Inn on, I think it's I-75 in Florida, 
right outside of Ocala. And I'm like, I wonder if he owns that. So at like 11 o'clock at night, I called the Yankee Inn and I said, hey, I know you can't give me his home number, but can you do this? So they ended up calling him and he called back to our show. You had to make things happen. Ironically, he was really good friends with Nick Charles, one of our anchor. And I said, hey, Nick wants to speak with him. Use Nick Charles' name. He called back. Somebody answered the phone. Who is this? Well, Nick's not here. Well, this is George Steinbrenner. Somebody said, yeah, right, and hung up on him. I was like, oh, my God, no. And then they called back, and we got the interview. But that's how we got the only interview with George Steinbrenner that night on the passing of Billy Martin. It was just a circus is the wrong word. It was just (laughs) – it was in some ways a three-ring circus trying to figure out how to get as much sports television we could and put it on the air. And this is the era, by the way, when CNN was the main competitor to ESPN. And I know that today seems crazy. Like, wait, what? CNN did sports? CNN did sports really, really well, had talented people coming through there. Bill McPhail was the first president of CNN Sports. He was a legend in the business. He had been the president at CBS Sports. Jim Walton was our executive producer who later became president of CNN. Jim loved sports, and he believed in giving young people a chance. And I think Jim's nurturing and Bill's nurturing of people like Robert and myself is so much at the root of what we've done since. It was a great time to be there, wasn't it, Robert? It was amazing. And their eye for talent, John and I excluded, obviously. But (laughs) especially on-air talent, I mean, you go through the roster of people that Bill McPhail and Jim Walton reached out to from small markets. It was Nick Charles, Fred Hickman, Hannah Storm, who's on ESPN, Dan Hicks, who's head of NBC Golf, Bob Lorenz, one of the main faces on the Yes Network, Vince Cellini. It just goes on and on. Gary Miller. So it was an amazing group. That's why I said earlier, it's not nostalgic. We just had an amazing group, an amazingly talented group of people to work with. Since those days, the two of you have become responsible for bringing a lot of storytelling craft to some of the stories in sports. Robert, when did that start for you? What was the sort of entree into the sports documentary? It was probably in 1992. Because I got into sports just like John. I loved it. I love run hits and errors, touchdowns, who won, who lost, who's going to the playoffs, who's winning it. After covering the Masters, the Super Bowl, the Olympics, certain things, just reporting who won wasn't enough for me. I wanted to tell stories. At the time, I was kind of a feature producer. You'd tell the side story. And in 1992, I did a documentary on Title IX. And that was a lot of storytelling, why women haven't been given an opportunity in the world of sports. And then in 1994, I did a documentary at CNN called Field of Screams. It was about stalking of athletes, death threats, things like that. That was probably the beginning for me. Uh, Our documentary unit at CNN reached out to the sports department and said, hey, would you guys like to do another doc? Because we did them for fairly cheap, so it helped get them back on budget, (laughs) to be honest. And they rated really well. Because, again, there's inherent drama in the stories we were telling. The World Cup was coming to America, and I had talked to Jim Walton. I had just read the book Among the Thugs about a guy who hung out with English soccer hooligans for a couple of years. And I said, Jim, I want to do this story on is this soccer hooliganism going to come to America for the World Cup? 
And he talked me out of it and talked me into doing something more on American sports. So we went with Field of Screams. And we talked about Mitch Williams getting death threats after giving up the home run to Joe Carter in the World Series. I talked to Katerina Vitt. She was stalked for two or three years by somebody who even flew over to Germany, jumped over a fence, chased her around the pool. It was one of the best interviews I've ever been a part of, where at first she didn't want to talk to me. Even though I had flown all the way to Idaho to interview her on this, she goes, we're not going to talk about that. And I said, well, yeah, we are. And she told me about laying in bed one night with a knife in her hand. The guy's banging on her front door. She's alone. She was wondering if he was going to break in and kill her. So I think that's when I first started looking beyond who won, who lost, and like the human drama of sports and who these people really are. And instead of the idols we look at every night or on a Sunday afternoon. For me, documentary storytelling was more of a journey and an evolution. When I was a kid, I loved sports from the moment I was born, pretty much. And not just sports, but I soon really had a love for sports media. Like, I would make my own sports pages growing up. By the time I was a senior in high school, I was actually an intern writing for the Charlotte News, the evening paper. Evening papers don't exist anymore, but back then they did. And I got to write at age 18 for the city paper in Charlotte, North Carolina, a big market. I did radio and newspaper through college at the University of North Carolina and in Charlotte, Charlotte Observer and WBT Radio in Charlotte. And then I got to graduation from UNC, and I had an offer to write sports for the Charlotte Observer. I turned it down for an unpaid internship at CNN Sports in Atlanta. <laughs> the managing editor at the time, Frank Barrow, said, well, that's the first time I've been turned down for no money. <laughs> but it's one of those things you do when you're 22 – I turned down a paying job at the Charlotte Observer. That was a great offer. But I really just wanted to try television. I felt the need to give it a shot. And I always thought I was going to be on air. And I was on air during college, and I had a byline in the newspaper. But I got to CNN, and I started to get into the production aspect of it. Mm -hmm. And I really started to enjoy that a lot, more and more. The great thing about CNN back then, we, like you did everything yourself. We would edit highlights ourselves. So we would log the games, and then we would cut a highlight package with the games, and we'd literally push those buttons to make the highlights. So you start to learn how to storytell for the visual exactly. medium right there. And then I did studio show producing. I was then a field producer for ESPN. I was hired away by ESPN. My career is very simple. Out of college, it was CNN, ESPN, CNN, ESPN. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Over time, I just developed different qualities. And gravitated eventually when I came back to CNN in the early 90s, got more into long-form storytelling, long-form features, and emotional, evocative storytelling. And then when I get back to ESPN in 1997, I started hearing about this project about the end of the century. And I'm like, well, my whole life has been building to a project like this. I've got to get on that. I was told to talk to this young guy named Mark Shapiro, who had been given the reins to run this project and who had developed a vision for it. And fortunately for me, Mark hired me. That really put me on the path that I am to this day in terms of documentary work. I've just stayed with documentaries ever since because I just absolutely loved the Sports Century Project. It was very successful for ESPN, for me personally. I've just gone with it ever since. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. I'm speaking with sports journalists and filmmakers, Robert Abbott and John Dahl, 
who recently collaborated on the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, The Last Days of Night. In a little bit, we're going to get into what it's like to become part of this story, which is never really the objective for a journalist, but it happens from time to time. So before we leave CNN altogether for ESPN, I wanted to ask you, Robert, about the Atlanta Olympics. Yes. Interestingly, what John said was my background as well. I took an unpaid internship at CNN. I had been there in 87. In 92, they asked me if I wanted to go to the New York Bureau. And I said, sure. So I was going to sell my car and all this stuff. And it fell through at the last second. So Jim Walton, the president at the time, felt bad. And he goes, do you want to do the Olympics? I said, oh, sure. I didn't know what I was getting into. So I did the 92 Olympics in Albertville, France, then in Barcelona, then Lillehammer, Norway. And then when the Olympics were coming to Atlanta, Jim said, hey, I'm taking you off everything you need to plan for the Olympics. It's in our own backyard. So I went around town and kind of negotiated live locations where we could broadcast, all of them for free. I took great pride in getting the most beautiful shot across the swim venue on the roof of this engineering company for free. And like I heard ESPN spent sixty to $80,000 to be on the building next door, <laughs> and it wasn't as good a shot. So, uh, oh, Robert, that was good for us. You know, working at CNN, news was first there. Yeah. And so we learned how to maximize resources in the sports division at CNN. And I think that put some good fundamentals in place for us going forward. It's so true. What John said is so true because it was we were kind of lean and mean. We didn't have 50 people. Like when we go to cover an Olympics, it'd be four people, maybe eight in the later years. When we'd go to a Super Bowl, ESPN may have 200. We'd have six, eight. You got to just be very diligent, smart, use your resources wisely. With regards to the 96 Olympics, it all came together, I think, at 1.25 in the morning when the bomb blew up in Centennial Olympic Park. It just so happened that Mark Morgan, our reporter, it was his birthday. And it was the one night I wasn't working the entire night. I said, no, we're going to go out and celebrate Mark's birthday at the House of Blues because I knew everybody in town by this point, because for a year I was talking to every restaurant, whatever, to see where I could get a camera and all. So I was in the shower getting ready to go meet up with Mark at 2 in the morning to celebrate his birthday because we were working so much. And I had just gotten out of the shower, and I heard the boom, and I felt the building kind of shake. I immediately threw on a pair of jeans and a T-shirt, and I looked out. I opened my door because the room I was at, right when you opened the door, was a window into the park. Dave Haberlin, our cameraman, came running down, and I'm like, get your camera. I go, that was an explosion. I must have had 50 credentials at the time to get into Nike City, Coca-Cola Olympic City, anything in town. I had some sort of picture ID that I could get in. I ran down with my phone that I didn't know how to operate that well. This was 1996, and cell phones weren't as easy as they are now. And everybody was coming out of the park, and I headed in. Cops were pushing me. You can't come in here. And then he'd turn his head and I'd go around him, go around him. And I didn't realize at the time, but where everyone was coming from, I just kept heading to that corner. And I didn't know what I was heading into or anything. I was just naive. It, it's like a passionate aggression, but it's also naive. Like we were aggressive journalists and we're passionate, but we're also naive. We didn't know what was at the end. We just knew we had to head that way. And I got all the way there and I was on the phone with CNN and they took a phoner. It's actually a portion of it is in the night film, The Last Days of Night. 
to be honest, all I did was say what I was seeing. And then finally, after a little bit, a cop grabbed me, escorted me out. By this time, the whole park was emptying. I went over to Nike. We had a camera there looking in. And at that point, I was on the phone again with CNN. And the Fulton County Sheriff came out and said, you have to shut down your production here. And I'm like, why? And he said, we think there may be other bombs. It just so happened, as I was saying that, my phone died. So my mom's listening in Miami, and I'm like, I have to shut this down because there may be other bombs, and then they lose my signal. So I come back. I grab somebody else's phone, said, hey, call my mom, whatever, I'm fine. And then it took me about an hour to get back into CNN Center. And twice I was stopped by FBI and Secret Service and Atlanta police. And remember I said I had 50 credentials around my neck. I'm like, dude, how many more things do I need to show that I work for CNN? There's like 50 of them here. And he said, well, somebody was seen leaving the park, fitting your description with a bag over his shoulder. I go, that was probably me because I was reporting from there. And I didn't go to bed that night. I didn't go to bed until I want to say I got back to my room at midnight the following night. So 24 hours after the bomb went off, basically, and another 14 or 15 hours since I had gotten up. And I finally turned on the news and I saw a live shot of where the bomb blew up. And I'm like, wow, I was right where it blew. Like, that's the first time it went off in my head because I was so focused on what I was doing moment by moment. I hope that makes sense. It does, but I'm sitting here thinking, was that the first time you felt like you were in danger or had been in danger? I d- it didn't. It never. I, I, I'm being honest. It nev- I never thought of it because when your adrenaline's going, I'm somebody that I just want to compete and win. And if everybody's running that way, then I want to go that way. And no matter how many cops stepped in my way and shoved me and said, you can't come in here, just kept getting around them, around them, around them, got there, said, hey, I counted 17 people down. That's how many people I saw down receiving medical attention and all. The only time it dawned on me that where I had gotten to, because once I got back to CNN Center that night, I don't know, 3.30 in the morning or so, it was a pretty intimidating moment. Because I walked into the newsroom, and at this point, Tom Johnson, the chairman of CNN's there, Jim Walton, our president had come in, and they're all standing there, and the Secret Service is there, and the FBI is there, and some Atlanta police are there. And I forget who said it. They said, well, you got to ask Robert. He's our Olympic guy. And all of a sudden, everybody was looking at me, and here's all these like huge executives in the room. It lasted for just an instant. And I was like, hey... Ted Turner had a penthouse apartment up on the top of CNN Center. I said, we need to get a camera drop up there. We need to get one on the World Congress Center next door because I had scouted all this stuff out for a year. And then I started, not that they didn't know this, but I said to the Secret Service and the FBI, I'm like, well, Coca-Cola Olympic City has closed circuit cameras everywhere. You should get their video. And Nike Town next door, like everybody in that proximity had them. The only reason I know that is because I was trying to call people at Coke to get them an hour before, but it's 2.30 in the morning and a bomb has just gone off. Like, you're not going to get anybody on the phone. It was interesting. There was a journalist from Minneapolis who asked me, it was several days later, he was doing a story, and he goes, what would prompt somebody to run in the direction of where a bomb just exploded? And I couldn't, I didn't have the answer. I just said, that's who I am. 
I knew that's where the story was, so I headed that way. Because you're fearless, Robert. You've always been fearless. <laughs> or stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what he's describing, too, speaks to something that was really important in Robert's career and my career, which is we caught cable television at a really interesting time as it was taking off. That was a perfect time to go to CNN and then ESPN. Cable was becoming more and more important in people's lives. You could do lives. anything. Yeah. There was no roles. If you were talented and you could do five things, they let you do five things. Yeah. John and I were so lucky at CNN. There's no internet. There's no social media. So people would rely on cable to have that extra time to go deeper into a story, to, to do blanket wall-to-wall coverage if that's what it took in certain stories like the Olympic Park bombing. And that probably fed what we have today now, you know, in, in so many ways. But back then, that was that was what cable did. It was just like the war in the Gulf. Right. It made a whole movie out of CNN being there, having the video of the, the, of the first you know, bombs going off. Right. Yeah. And that night of the bombing, I'll never forget coming back into the Omni Hotel. And by this point, I just needed to change T-shirts. <laughs> and I got on the elevator, and there was Carl Malone, Shaq. Carl Malone just wanted to get his family out. Again, this is 3.34 in the morning now because it's been several hours. I remember, I believe I picked up Janet Evans and you dropped her off or you picked her up. I picked her up, yeah. You picked her up and I dropped Mm -hmm. her off because we wanted to go get Janet Evans on CNN. I mean, she was one of the more famous athletes on the U.S. team. And John went and picked her up at the Olympic Park and then after the interview, I took her back. But just being in that close proximity, I remember members of either the FBI or Secret Service crawling. You've been in hotels all around the country where there's plants. They're literally crawling through there, looking under leaves and stuff. It was like a movie. It was surreal. But again, I'm racing up to my room. I don't have time to take it all in, but I have these little snapshots of moments where I just was like, whoa. It was a pretty wild night. Now, John, you were talking a moment ago about the access that CNN granted and how it was a boon to sports coverage or really to everything, how it changed the ability to tell stories and how you could cover stories. And then ESPN, of course, does the same thing. So let's talk about how things kind of shifted back in a way when the storytelling became more contained and focused through 30 for 30. So let's talk about how 30 for 30 came about about 10 years ago. Uh, as initially a project to commemorate the anniversary. So, John, if you could talk about how you first became involved with that. You know, I had worked in documentary programming for a while now at this point. The Sports Century Project won a Peabody and Emmys, and it was extremely successful. And I continued doing documentary work at ESPN Classic. We continued uh, Sports Century at Classic. Robert and I worked together on a project called ESPN 25, Mm -hmm. first 25 years of the ESPN era. And we looked at all the biggest headlines and people and games and whatnot of that ESPN era and told those stories. So I did a lot of those kind of long form projects, a project on 40 years of the Super Bowl, Muhammad Ali's 65th birthday. So it all kind of led up to what became 30 for 30, I think, in terms of my involvement. You know, it started with Bill Simmons. And Connor Shell having a conversation, Bill calling Connor with this idea about doing something different for the 30th anniversary of ESPN, doing something that would be ultimately a give back to fans, a gift to fans, tell these stories 
that touch on these larger themes. I think it quickly got developed in that conversation that Connor and Bill initially had, and it would continue to evolve a little bit over time and became what it was, which is these very specific stories that touch larger themes, larger cultural themes. For years, we've been doing documentaries at ESPN. I mean, we did like, I I did the math at one point around 2005, 2006. We were doing almost 10 documentaries for every one that HBO Sports was doing. But there was a point in the mid-2000s where HBO had the reputation as being the home of the premier sports right. doc, not ESPN. And it's like, wow, we're doing too much. You know, <laughs> like this is a classic example of how less can be more. And I think what was different about what we did was we said, all right, we're going to create a cinematic experience. We're going to play up the individuality of the directors. We're not going to run from it. Before that, when we did documentaries, it all felt like it was coming from ESPN, this nameless, faceless ESPN. Now we wanted to bring in specific individuals to tell stories that they were passionate about, they had an expertise about, and tell it in the style they wanted to tell it. So we embraced all these different ways of telling stories, and we would keep a level of consistency through the overall presentation on the air and the quality. What we did, what I would focus on, I'd see every rough cut of every film. You know, we'd give notes and others would give notes. We have project leaders working with those filmmakers on a day-to-day basis to bring out the best in their vision, to make the film the best we thought it could be working with the filmmaker. Ultimately, though, we wanted the filmmaker's vision to come through. We didn't want to tell them how to tell the story or heard how to tell the story. We just wanted to bring out the best in it. And so people just really responded to that. We had a need for programming when we launched it in 2009, right after the anniversary, the 30th anniversary of ESPN. That fall, we put on half a dozen or so. We had one after the Heisman called The U. Things really took off with a film like that in a high-profile slot like the Heisman. Then we put 23 films on the air in 2010. I still kind of can't believe it. 23 films. That's amazing. And initially, and they were all supposed to be one There's still 12 months hour. in a year, right? Yeah, yeah right. exactly. Just, just checking on that. Yeah, exactly. Well, we had one span where we had a film on 12 straight weeks. And by the way, I also, in that year, um, the birth of my son... And and, uh, during 30 for 30, moving from a rental house back to our house that was being renovated. So, you know, I just. So clearly you had a lot of time. I had a lot going on in life. A lot of downtime. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think we caught it at just the right time in terms of, you know, having so many films on in one year. And they were different because of the different style playing up the filmmaker. It felt fresh to viewers and they really responded. I mean, beyond our wildest imagination, quite honestly, because we were doing 30 for 30. The initial thought was we'd do 30 films. And then we sunset it and we do other things for the ESPN Films brand, which we launched in 2008. And what Which we... someone sitting in this room tried to talk you out of changing <laughs> brands. Well, it just goes to show you the uh, imperfect science of creating a brand that lasts. Because you'll rack your brain over a brand name and then it goes nowhere. And then you do something like 30 for 30, which I thought was a brilliant name that you know Bill and Connor had come up right. with. It comes to transcend its original meaning. The original meaning was 30 films, 30 years, 30 different filmmakers. That's where it began. But then it transcended that. So when we did a film right after the first run of 30 films, we had The Fab Five, directed by Jason Hare. Yeah, he did a brilliant job with it. It wasn't labeled 30 for 30, but everybody just called it a 30 for 30. And any other film we did after that, they just called it a 30 for 30. We were like, we need to listen to people. Why don't we just run with this and just, you know. Should have listened to me, John. Yeah, I know. I was the one person going, the 30 for 30 brand <laughs> is so powerful. You can do anything with it. Just stay with it. Don't create a brand that people love and then turn your head away from. And I'm not in 
marketing and advertising and brand creation. I just love great content. And I said, just because it has a bookend of 30 years, 30 films, 30 different directors, doesn't mean you can't continue it. And they went back. How many films did you do? We did about a dozen. And then we just said season two, did 30 more, season three and so on. We've just continued it. But it came together out of part nostalgia. People want to kind of go back and relive these moments and experience them in a new way. But also just like it came because of the passion of these filmmakers that we enlisted. Sometimes we'd have an idea and we'd match it with a filmmaker. I'd say most of the time a filmmaker came to us with an idea and we're like, yeah, that sounds like 30 for 30. Let's do it. It just took off. And it's really rewarding to see the kind of um, regard that people have for it to this day. Well, that was one of the things I was going to ask. I was curious about what makes the cut. How do you decide what is 30 for 30? But you've just answered that question. Yeah, it's a specific story. Like, So when we get pitched something that was more broad, like, you know, I don't know, violence in sports or something like, no, that's out trying to go in. We want to start in and through that specific story, you'll get that larger story. So, for example, our second film was The Band That Wouldn't Die, directed by Barry Levinson. Talk about giving us legitimacy. Barry yeah. Levinson did that a 30 for 30. <laughs> and his story was personal to him. He was a Baltimore fan. And he remembered, with heartbreak, the Colts leaving Baltimore in the middle of the night for Indianapolis. So he wanted to tell this story of how this marching band for the Colts, famous marching band, goes back decades, kept marching like they stayed together like they found a way to salvage their uniforms even and he wanted to tell this story of how that band just kept on marching and going and keep the fires burning in Baltimore until they got a team you know like a dozen years later that was 30 for 30 to the core it was personal to Barry Levinson the filmmaker and it told a very specific story about this marching band but through that story you understand what sports means to a community documentaries are not medicine it can be entertaining, you know, engaging. It's not like sit down, watch this. It's good for you. You need to learn this. How about you're compelled to watch it? You're engaged. You're connecting emotionally to the story. And so because we had a very clear mission, we did pitch meetings and we usually know like, yep, that's 30 for 30. Nope, that's not. And so like the two Escobars, um, the, the Zimbalist brothers, great film. Michael and Jeff They're Zimbalist, one of my favorites. We knew nothing really about them coming into the meeting. I knew they had done one other documentary, uh, Favela Rising, about the slums of Brazil. But they had this pitch for the two Escobars. We knew within two, three minutes we were doing that film, even though they didn't have a ton of experience. And they did it masterfully. I mean, they really did. It's one of our most popular films. Yeah, I love it. And we saw through 30 for 30, what was interesting was that notion, again, of sports documentaries are entertaining. People will watch them. The ratings took off. You know, initially it started slow. King's Ransom about the Gretzky trade. Then there's a few. The first one we had a bigger rating for was the Len Bias film, Without Bias, about the death of Len Bias. And then the Jimmy the Greek film. And then mm -hmm. the U just right. was huge uh, coming after the Heisman lead-in. And so we started to show as we went into 2010 that, yeah, these films can rate. People watch them. And you can watch them over and over. I think what we were able to tap into was like a movie, like a scripted movie, where people want to watch their favorite movie again and again. I think we were able to find that zone where fans want to keep watching certain 30 for 30s. Everybody has their favorite. It was never intended that you would like every 30 for 30 film we did. Like the same person would like every film. But that adds to the variety of it. I can't tell you how many anecdotal stories I would get from people who were casual sports fans. Hey, I'm not really a sports fan, but I love 30 for 30. And I would also get my teenage sons love 30 for 30. Teenage boys right. really got into 30 for 30. And that wasn't something we were initially thinking about when we started it. 
John Dahl and Robert Abbott, the producer and the director, respectively, of the ESPN 30 for 30 documentary, The Last Days of Night. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Recently, ESPN Plus came along, a subscription-based service for ESPN, and the flagship documentary, the flagship 30 for 30 documentary, is the film that you're here to screen, The Last Days of Night. It's my understanding that you, Robert, were initially resistant to the idea of making this film, and that it was you, John, who first had the idea to revisit the story of the firing of Bob Knight from Indiana University. This is Robert, and the film was never my idea. (laughs) It wasn't my idea. I had pitched John a film several years before, maybe two and a half years before, three years before, called Catholics versus Convicts. I grew up in Miami, went to Florida State, and I ran into a friend. His brother wrote a book on Notre Dame's 1988 championship, last NCAA champion football team. And he thought it would be a good 30 for 30. And I'm like, nah, it's too generic. You know, I didn't even run it by John. I'm like, I'm not interested. And he kept talking to me. And I said, wait a second. Is that the year of the Catholics versus convicts game? And he said, yes. And I said, that's a film. Because it was a clash of cultures. It was the bad boys of Miami against the historical pristine Notre Dame University and Wake Up the Echoes and George Gipp. And so I had pitched it to John. And John had turned it down because the timing wasn't right. But a couple of years later, John said, I'd like to do the film. Would you mind if I had another director direct it? And I was heartbroken. I had that film mapped out in my head because I loved it. He wanted Patrick Creedon, who had gone to Notre Dame. His father had gone to Notre Dame. His grandfather had gone to Notre Dame. And oh, by the way, Patrick was best friends with Pat Walsh, who had created the Catholics versus Convicts t-shirt. And... Patrick Creed was an acclaimed documentary filmmaker. I'm like, okay, you can only check so many boxes without me saying, okay, you know, <laughs> go for it. And But John kept saying, I want you to tell your story about Bob Knight. Patrick's going to tell the story of Catholics versus convicts because he lived it. I want you to tell the story of your investigation while you're at CNN into Bob Knight because you lived it. So it's an example of what makes 30 for 30 and what John does so special is Patrick Creedon lived that. He's a documentary filmmaker, but he never pitched that idea, right? And I lived the Bob Knight, but I never thought it was a documentary, but John does. I messed up the first rough cut because I told the story how I had told, I don't know, hundreds if not thousands of stories in the past where I get out of the way and let everybody else tell it because I'm not an on-camera person. And John kept coming back to me and we had a meeting. He said, you got to decide, is this a film about Neil Reed, Bob Knight, or you? He goes, it's up to you. You make the decision, but I know what I want it to be. I want you to tell your story. Once I wrapped my head around what John was looking for, I bought into it. And then I actually saw it. I saw the vision that he already had. I was just late to the party. And I went back after I'd done a rough cut of the film and just hand wrote my notes on a legal pad of all the things I remembered in order. 
And then I went back to the rough cut I already cut, got rid of other people, and just started to say, this is what it was like for me to report this story. That's what I was really struck by when I saw the documentary. It was something I'd never seen before, which was a sports journalism procedural. Was that your conception from the beginning, John, or did it evolve into that? Because you mentioned that writing down everything that happened chronologically was key and really figuring out what the film was. But did you always see that that's what it was trying to be? Yes, I did. And it's because I was such a huge admirer of the movie All the President's Men about the Woodward-Bernstein investigation ended up winning an Oscar Mm -hmm. for Best Picture about the investigation of Watergate. And I I would tell Robert, this will be our version of all the president's men. (laughs) And and for a while, Robert's like, oh, come on. I'm like, no, really, trust me. That's the story that hasn't been told. It just tapped back into, I think, what 30 for 30 is. You come in different ways to tell these stories. You come in often very personal ways to tell these stories. And Robert was a little irritated with me when I said, you know. Not a uh, little. Yeah, maybe a more than a little. <laughs> when, when I said, Robert, I don't want you to direct the Catholics versus convicts. It's not personal oh, to you. Oh, it still hurts when he says that. <laughs> we had done the you and the you part two. And we had told those stories through the Miami point of view. Those films were really hits for us. And so it was clear to me if we were going to go back into another story with Miami, we needed it from the Notre Dame point of view. So I told Robert, like, look, we got to find a Notre Dame filmmaker I said, but Robert, I really do want you to tell your story of the night investigation because it was a story only Robert could tell. He hadn't told it. People didn't know it. They didn't understand the great majority of people. Well, how did Bob Knight end up losing his job? It was because of Robert Abbott. And it's because I knew Robert going back about 30 years. So I knew what kind of investigation he did. I knew what kind of person he is and was. And I thought that story's got to be told. But the way to tell it is You've got to take them into your world. they got to know what it's like to go up against this legendary figure. And I wanted people also to know that Robert didn't go into it with an agenda. He wasn't trying to get Bob Knight fired. All he was doing was trying to get to the truth. That's all it was about. I know it sounds simple, maybe oversimplified, but that's what he was doing. And through that quest, all the things that happened, happened. I just thought people, I think, are going to be fascinated by this story and understanding what a journalist really goes through. And it seems to be about a lot of things that you wouldn't necessarily expect going in. One thing that struck me watching the film is it's about how we treat people who come forward, about how we treat people who speak truth to power. Is that something that was occurring to you while you were making the film or since you completed it? The film, yes, the original reporting, no. The original reporting is just... You were running in when everyone was running out. Yes. My boss came into my office. I had just gotten back from Sydney, Australia, doing a site survey for the 2000 Olympics, and I had some downtime, and Luke Recker had left Indiana. He was a Mr. Indiana basketball player in high school here, uh, prize recruit of Bob Knight. He was a sophomore, and he faxed in his letter of resignation at midnight one night that I'm leaving the program. And my boss called me in, Steve Robinson. He's in the film. He was a great boss. He used to run investigations at Sports Illustrated. At first, this wasn't an investigation. Steve just said three high school McDonald's All-Americans have left Bob Knight's program in the past two years. Something's going on. Go find out why. We thought initially it would be not a feature piece, but more of an issue piece with the prominence of AAU basketball High school basketball players getting a lot of attention at a young age. They have an inflated sense of their ego. Could they just not play for someone like Bob Knight? 
hey, coach, I don't need to listen to you yelling at me. I'm great as it is. And that was our thought going in. And we thought it would be more of an issue piece, Knight and Indiana being the example, but it would be larger. But three days into my reporting, I called Neil Reed, and he told me a far different story. He didn't want to go on camera, didn't want to go on the record, but we just kept talking for nine months. So initially when I did this, again, it's kind of just taken one more step towards where the bomb went off. Like you're not 30,000 feet seeing what's really going on. You're just like, I want to find out more. I'm curious by nature. I can't tell you how many people, you know, girls in college or after were like, stop interviewing me. I'm like, I'm not interviewing you. I'm just curious. <laughs> I'm curious. I meet somebody you know, if I'm in New York City and I'm in a cab, I'm talking to the cab driver. I just like talking to people. So I just kept asking questions. And one thing led to another, which led to another, which led to another. Looking back on the reporting process 17, 18, 19 years later, I see things now that I didn't see then. I see power, the abuse of power, what it's like to go up against a powerful person. At the time, I was very naive. At the beginning of the process of doing the film, I called my former boss, John mentioned him earlier, Jim Walton. He was president of CNN Sports, and then he went on to be president of CNN for about 10 years. And Jim is someone who doesn't like the limelight and didn't want to be interviewed, but he said, Robert, you gotta understand something. He goes, when you were doing your reporting, you had a job to do. Miles Brand had a job to do. Bob Knight had a job to do. The PR person at Indiana had a job to do. He goes, they often don't line up. When I was doing the reporting, I'm like, how can they not see what's going on? Like it kind of blew my mind. But now looking back at it 18 years later, I understand now what Christopher Simpson's job was, that Miles Brand's job was to run the university and have fundraising at the highest it could be and grow the school and all that stuff. And so his job doesn't necessarily match with my job, which is to get to the truth. And even though it does sound simple, when John says it and I say it, it really was that simple. You're just trying to find out what's the truth. I was told dozens upon dozens of stories. I just kept making phone calls. And I didn't put words in people's mouth. That's one thing I hope people take from the film. If you were a player there, I wouldn't call you and say, Aaron, did you see Coach Knight choke Neil Reed? I'd just say, how did they get along? I just start really wide. And normally they'd go, yeah, it all went fine until he choked him. And then I'm like, what do you mean choked him? Describe it. And then when you have people using the same language, when someone tells you a story, you have pictures in your head. And all of a sudden, three, four, five players, and all of a sudden the pictures are all lining up. And I go, there's something to this. Then the next step is to have them overcome their fear. Fear was a huge word in this. When powerful people are involved, the majority of people keep silent because they're afraid. And overcoming that fear was the greatest challenge in this. I didn't necessarily understand it at the time. I just knew, hey, just trust me. I'm not going to screw you. Just tell me what happened. And for nine months, people told me what happened, and I never reported a word of it. And that gains their trust. So if you've told me three or four or five things that if it was reported yesterday, you may be in hot water with Indiana basketball coach night, whomever, and I've never reported them, you're going to tell me number seven, eight, nine, and 10. And all of a sudden I had all this information and then I had to go back around the horn and say, 
okay, who's going to be the first one to sit down on camera? Because once you get one person, then I can go and say, hey, John Dahl just sat down with me. Aaron, will you do it? Oh, hey, Bill, John and Aaron said they'll do it. Will you do it? And then you piece together what is a on-camera kind of television investigation piece. I mean, some of the qualities uh, that Robert describes is why people didn't know the story, I don't think, until we did the last days of night 30 for 30. Robert doesn't draw attention to himself. Robert is not out to make a headline for himself. Robert is extraordinarily dogged, diligent, and patient. And he let the story play out over months where so many others, I think, would maybe just succumb to that deadline pressure and feeling like, I got to say something. I got to write something. And Robert just patiently let it play out on its own timetable until he got the facts lined up, until he got it just right. And honestly, Robert could have, after this story was done, he could have written a book. He could have easily done that. He didn't do that. Robert is not somebody who's doing this to make headlines for himself. In stories like this, people have to just think of everybody involved. It's so easy to just look at it from the basketball point of view or Bob Knight's point of view or Indiana's point of view. But you really got to think about it from Neil Reed's point of view and those other players who had problems that they wanted to open up to Robert about. To what extent is the end of Bob Knight's career the story of one man losing control and going too far versus a story about cultural change and what people are willing to accept from their heroes? I think it's as much the latter as the former. And I think it's also a story about not only power and the abuse of power, it's what happens when you let power go unchecked. There was no one who checked Coach Knight along the way. This is something that I didn't realize at the time, but in doing the film, I realized how important 1987-88 was in the future trajectory of Coach Knight's career. In 1987, A Season on the Brink came out, and many people in the faculty read it and were appalled. At the time, I was very proud of my reporting because I uncovered some notes and minutes from a student faculty meeting where they imposed, for lack of a better term, like a student bill of rights or an athlete bill of rights, and was written specifically for Coach Knight. When you look at the language in it, it was like, what I just read in this book, we don't want it happening anymore. And just to make sure, we were talking about The Season on the Brink. This is the book by John Feinstein, uh, which was after having spent a season with Bob Knight, and it's a book of which Bob Knight was certainly not that fond. And at least according to Feinstein himself, it is the best-selling sports it's one of, of the best time. sports books ever written. Yeah. yeah. I mean, hands down, it's yeah. top five at least. Yeah. What John Feinstein did is he kind of showed who Coach Knight was a little bit behind the scenes, what you didn't see. And people on the faculty were, like I said, appalled with the language written in the book that Coach Knight would use the P word, female genitalia, to describe a player. And that player would go back to his locker and there would be tampons in it. And things like that that just made people cringe. And they said, we can't do this. So they, right at the beginning of 87, they imposed this athlete's bill of rights like in January. And then two months later, Coach Knight wins his third national championship. So you could have ripped that piece of paper up and thrown it in the fire. He was a god. It was a year later when he sat down for an interview with Connie Chung on stress in America. It was an open topic of how people deal with stress, and here's Coach Knight, and he, when asked a question, he used the analogy, 
well, if rape is inevitable, one should just lay back and enjoy it. He quickly, I want to reiterate, he quickly realized he had said something wrong. You can wrong. see him walking it back. Yeah, he walked it back immediately, but it still had a lot of ramifications. People were marching on campus. The president of the university at the time, Thomas Ehrlich, issued a very mild reprimand, and Coach Knight went and interviewed at New Mexico. And all of a sudden, the state was up in arms at Ehrlich, no longer at night. How could you be forcing Coach Knight to leave? It really showed who had the power on campus here. And so from that point on, I think he knew he could do whatever he wanted. And he had more of a power base than any president they were going to bring in here, any athletic director they were going to bring in here, any booster who could write a $300 million check. It meant nothing compared to the power of Coach Knight. It can happen in any school. I mean, Nick Saban's won how many national titles now? Five. Who's going to challenge Nick Saban? Who's going to challenge Mike Krzyzewski? Not to say that they're doing anything wrong, but I'm just saying power unchecked is a dangerous thing. And I think this film is as much about that as it is about Bob Knight and Indiana University. It can happen anywhere. And in our society today, we've seen countless times in the last three years where powerful men have abused their power and they've lost their jobs in the media industry and Hollywood across the board because they thought they played by a different set of rules. You know, for society to work, everybody needs to play by the same set of rules. And when you start giving high performers and high achievers a different set of rules where they can do anything, it's a recipe for trouble. So I think it was the combination of Coach Knight's temper. He never got it under control. Society not putting up, and specifically players, not putting up what they may have in the 70s and 80s. There's a really good line from Dave Kindred in the film where he said, you can't coach Indiana in 2000 like you did Army in 1965. When Coach Knight coached at Army, those kids, after they graduated, were probably going to the Vietnam War. It's life or death. So he coached that way. In the 90s, the Fab Five, baggy shorts, rap music, it's a different breed of player. And I don't think Coach Knight quite understood that. And the recipe of those four or five things that I just said led to his downfall. I mean, that is ultimately what The Last Days of Night 30 for 30 is about. It's about power. I think it follows that similar kind of storyline, not only of all the president's men, but of Spotlight, of mm -hmm. The Post. I think ultimately the film became even more timely than when we first right. commenced production on this. Exactly. What happened and more recently with like the Me Too movement, for example. Mm -hmm. I think we've moved as a society more toward listening to all individuals. Everybody's got a story and nobody, nobody ever should be abused in any way. And we need to believe people when they come forward and tell a story and not cast aspersions on them and always like doubt what they're saying or say, uh, why did you not say this back then or whatever? Well, we saw in how the last days of the night, 30 for 30 plays out with Neil Reed. When you come forth and you speak about what happened to you, there's blowback. You're vilified. There, you're yeah, crucified. There you're done. You come under attack. That's why people don't speak out. Because they know that they're going to be attacked to a certain degree. What Robert did here is extraordinary because he was the original reporter and producer. Okay, Now I'm asking him to go narrate it and direct it himself. I'm putting a tremendous amount on his shoulders. But I also knew Robert could handle it because I've known Robert for a long, long, long time. And he did prove me right. 
you proved me 100% right. I tried to prove you a lot wrong early on. But you proved me exactly right. No, but I bought into it. I understood it. You figured it out. It was the most difficult thing I've ever done because I'm not used to being in front of the camera. I'm not used to voicing things. It's not about me. It never has been. I love telling stories, but I love telling them through the anchor, the reporter, or stories that tell themselves. But you said it in this interview about the victim. And do we believe that person when they come forward? How many victims of Bill Cosby had to come forward before people thought, wait, maybe this did happen? Was it four? Was it six? Was it eight? Was it 10? That's really unfortunate for victim one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, that you kind of dismiss what they say until there's strength in numbers. That's what I learned as a journalist, that the one thing I told everybody along the way is I'm not going to put you out there by yourself because you'll lose. So that's when I got all these stories. I kept coming around the corner and said, hey, will you talk? Will you talk? Will you go on camera? Will you go on camera? And even though I did get Richard Mandeville, Charlie Miller, Neil Reed, and I had five or six sources on every story in there, they still tried to shred it because who had the power here? Coach Knight, IU, the basketball machine, the people who loved him in the state of Indiana. I never viewed it as myself against Coach Knight or power. I just kept making phone calls. And any journalist who's listening to this, don't worry about anything else. Try to put earmuffs on and not listen to any of the noise. Don't listen to any of the stories. Don't read Twitter. Don't do any of that. Just report, 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 and try to find out if what you heard is true. And if it is, present it. We're not the judge, jury, and executioner at all. I didn't get Coach Knight fired. Coach Knight got himself fired. It happened to be that Miles Brand fired him. I had nothing to do with it when it came to that. All I did was tell a story that these things were going on at Indiana University, and I think the world should know about them. Robert Abbott, John Dahl, thank you so much for speaking with me today. You're welcome. Thank you for having us. Yeah, really enjoyed it. I've been speaking with Robert Abbott, documentary filmmaker, producer, and president of Hey Abbott Entertainment, and John Dahl, vice president and executive producer of ESPN Films and Original Content. They were recently in Bloomington to present a screening of their latest collaboration for ESPN's 30 for 30 films, The Last Days of Night. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash, The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.